Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing whether the pandemic could be causing a leadership exodus in the charity sector. And later in the show we'll be joined by Martin Edwards to find out how charity leaders can support each other. And as ever, we'll be bringing you our Good News Bulletin to end the show. But first, the third sector team was reunited in full for the first time ever yesterday in our office return. I say first time ever in terms of the composition of our current editorial team. Um, the four of us were back on a desk bank. Um, Rebecca, how are you finding it, that that gradual return to the office? I'm finding the morning commute's okay. By the evening, I'm I'm done with it. And I'm like, oh yeah, I remember why, why. But actually, no, it was, of course, lovely to come and see my colleagues. <laughs> yes. to, as, you know, as I've said, make a cup of tea for someone, have someone make a cup of tea for me. Um, you know, it was it was good. It was very nice to sort out things like sending the bulletin by just, you know, asking a quick question, getting a quick response and just doing the change rather than waiting for the email or the Gchat message yes. to come through, waiting for them to notice and then to send it back. And yeah. And just having general chit chat, general chit chat about things is lovely. Although I am definitely in a place where I'm like, how did I get any work done? Uh, back in the days when we did that five <laughs> days a week. I, that's, and my uh, what I'm finding is my routine, my morning routine is completely out of whack. You know, I used to be like a finely tuned machine in the morning. I could be out of bed. I knew where my keys were. I could get all of my timings in 10 minute installments down from out of bed to out of the door by 8am. Um, but now, oh my goodness, it's it's a whole lot slower. And I don't have that kind of you know, almost instinctive understanding of what the trains are going to do and how that's going on. So a lot of relearning to be done, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think I have the advantage there in that I was never a finely tuned machine first thing in the morning. I never <laughs> will be. Um, so, you know, at least that's never, that's that's not been a problem. Uh, but yeah, trains and stuff. Yes, knowing, okay, if this train is delayed, I can hop on this train and do this. Yeah, no, that's gone. That bit of knowledge. And like my and I, I don't actually have to cross London to get to our offices, but I have found since I've been venturing out that my my mental tube map of London or my mental transport map of London has kind of corroded a little. There are just bits missing, just file not supplied. I don't know where the info is. I don't know. I don't know how to get there. I've forgotten. I'll have to look it up. And of course, you know, whether organisations are returning to the office or like some charities making that choice to work from home permanently, we are seeing lots of big changes in the ways that we work and the world of work at the moment. And that goes right up to the very top of organisations. So Rebecca, you've been keeping an eye on a really interesting anecdotal trend that we're seeing in the sector at the moment. Um, give me a little bit of background on what you're looking at right now. Okay, so just over the past year or so, uh, looking at our news stories about leaders stepping down, uh, I and I have to say our, our news editor, Andy Ricketts, kind of began to feel like we were just seeing more high profile leaders stepping down without another equivalent or bigger job to go on to. It just seemed that there were more people making sideways moves, people planning to take time out, people leaving the sector or planning to have portfolio careers, doing freelance. And like I say, it just seemed like there was more of that happening than in previous years. Um, And of course, we know that the pandemic has put incredible pressure on everyone working in charities. So yeah, I just started to wonder, is the pandemic causing leaders to quit? Um, so that was my theory. And so I did some number crunching. And and what did you find? Well, the numbers 
do seem to back up my little pet theory. So this was my my little my little experiment, which wasn't is I must say not very scientific. <laughs> um, so I looked at the news stories of leaders stepping down on the third sector website, um, and I just went through all of them for the past few years and compared those from between March 2019 and March 2020 with those in the following year, so March 2020 to 21. So the first year of the pandemic with before the year before the pandemic i excluded stories where there had been some sense of a scandal involved in the person's decision to leave you know since there might be another reason they've gone um and you know those who had retired uh, on the basis that people usually plan their retirement a few years in advance right although obviously some people might have decided to shift that forward because of covid but yeah uh, i thought that was a safer bet um so from march 2019 to march 2020 62% of news stories about chief executives stepping down Um, featured leaders who didn't have another job lined up. They were leaving the sector, moving to a smaller charity. And and so actually that was higher than I thought it was going to be. But then in the year to March 2021, the figure was 81%. Um, And then between March and June this year, uh, which was when I was sort of putting the figures together, it was 100%, although I should say that was only two news stories, so not very (laughs) conclusive. Um, not the biggest scientific no, example we no, could and the whole thing, <laughs> pull Let's from. be honest, the whole thing was not a scientific yes. measure. You know, for a start, it's a very small pool. And, you know, it depends on the person and the charity. We might not run a story if something bigger happens that day, right? Or we might decide to run a story because nothing else has happened that day. But all of those massive caveats aside, it does suggest there might be a little bit of a trend. And I think a key thing is that you are not alone in this. There have been other more rigorous, sorry, not to again imply that your work is not rigorous. There have been other (laughs) slightly more exhaustive studies that back up your theory. So as one example, a survey of 450 charity leaders in January, which was conducted by the insurance firm Ecclesiastical, found that 44% of leaders had considered quitting during the pandemic as a result of those increased pressures. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, as you say, this data was not you know, the whole article in itself. So I went on you know, looking at that study, looking at what I'd done. Uh, so I went on to speak to Vicky Browning, who's the chief executive of the charity leaders body at Kivo. Shax Ghosh, who's the chief executive of Claw Social Leadership, which offers kind of training uh, and mentorship. Um, and Joanne Moriarty, who is a partner at the charity recruitment consultancy Green Park. And so I asked them, you know, what do you think of this? And they all said, yeah. We also don't necessarily have numbers to back it up, but anecdotally, at least, we've observed the same pattern. We think the same thing is going on. It's so interesting. And and why do they think this is happening? Well, I mean, they are also pretty convinced it's as a result of COVID. You know, it's that combination of very long hours, blurred boundaries between home and work, fewer opportunities to take a break. And, you know, of course, none of that is unique to chief executives or to the charity sector. So one thing Vicky Browning pointed out was that being in this kind of constant crisis mode, which you know the sector has been in for you know, almost 18 months now and that leaders have been in for that period of time, um, it leaves a lot less time to reflect, to think strategically or just get that headspace that chief executives really need to be able to think about how they're going to steer the organisation. And, and so it just all adds up and it's all piling on to leaders. And of course, you know, if you've got a situation where perhaps there were already problems in the organisation, sort of, you know, stuff clunking along in the background that probably needs to be sorted out, those are going to get magnified by the pandemic. And, you know, there's also the point that a lot of people, the pandemic has made a lot of people reassess their priorities and take stock of, you know, whether they're actually enjoying what they're doing, whether they've got the right work-life balance, you know, what actually matters to them and so on. 
Um, so I also spoke to Jane Eyde for this piece and um, she made a bit of a sideways move during the pandemic from being chief executive of NAVCA, which is the umbrella body for infrastructure organisations, um, and was really right in the forefront of the sector response to the pandemic. Um, she kind of, she moved, like I said, a slightly sideways move to um, the leading the cultural sector support charity, Creative and Cultural Skills. And she said she'd already decided to move on pre-pandemic because that's how she views her career. She doesn't want to stay in one place for too long. But she also said, looking back, she's not sure that she could have maintained the pace of work that was being demanded of her at NAVCA. Absolutely. And I think, you know, obviously neither you or I can really speak from that perspective of being a chief executive. But I, I really couldn't agree more with that observation you made about taking stock and deciding what matters and deciding that you need a change because... Anecdotally, I have seen so many friends and colleagues over the last year making big life decisions as a result of the stress of the COVID crisis. And that spans everything from a change of career, um, going from permanent to part time or freelance in terms of their work or making you know different life decisions like changing where you live, relocating to a different part of the country, going from city life to somewhere, you know, really, really rural. And um, I think you know, moments like this, they come round once in a while. But when they do, people do really get quite a stark look at, at what matters to them. And that, you know, that, that plays out in the choices they then make. Exactly. And I think the ways in which we've all had to pause in different parts of our lives. And then, you know, if you've had if you've had some kind of event that has meant you've had to take time away from work, like a bereavement or just, you know, caring responsibilities or something like that you know, that that can all have an impact. And Jane Ide was saying that as a chief executive, you know, you're always going to feel like you've not done enough. That's kind of just part of the job. And then when you add the pandemic and those very particular pressures with that, she described it really interestingly as boiling frog syndrome. You know, there's a thing about you don't realise what's happening because the pressure is turned up gradually. Um, but she said, you know, if you have to take that pause or, you know, if something happens and you, you step back and you once you've seen it, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You can't go back to this is OK and actually not a problem with how I'm living my life. So with people assessing and making changes um, and these trends that, you know, a few people have observed, do you get the sense that the sector is now losing out on talent and on leadership as a result of that pandemic? Yes and no. Or rather, yes, but that isn't the whole picture. So Shaq's ghost at Claw Social Leadership works with people who aren't quite at the top of their career yet. They're the leaders and managers sort of beneath CEO level. They're the ones who are sort of looking to move up. And she said she's seeing a lot of those people moving up to fill leadership positions. Um, so, you know, two things there. One is, you know, that's how she's saying, well, you know, clearly we're seeing more movement at leadership level because otherwise what's happening to people that are already there if the people I'm working with are moving into those jobs. But the second one she's saying, you know, crucially, there is the talent there to fill the gap. You know, we do have very talented people at that sort of senior leadership level that aren't quite a chief executive. Um, so, you know, there are, there are people there. And so and, and also sort of Joanne Moriarty, who works with with uh, as a as a recruitment consultant, was saying that, you know, there is this greater churn at leadership level. And actually, that could be quite healthy for the sector. You know, it may well mean that we're getting new and different people into those leadership roles and, and create opportunities for new kinds of leadership. You know, maybe it's going to be a bit less macho, a bit more collaborative, and creative, innovative, less kind of 
hero orientated, you know, this idea of this one person who is the only person who can lead us through, um, you know, and, and more inclusive and more team focused. And actually, that could be quite a good thing for the sector, you know, and it, it could well pave the way for a greater diversity of leaders in the sector and, and fewer kind of internal appointments. And, you know, she's sort of saying she's seeing fewer charities sort of ringing up and saying what we had last time, we want one of those. And that's no bad thing. No, no. And what they're doing now is saying, actually, what do we need? Not what have we had, um, which I think is, is is really important. But obviously, we still don't want current leaders to get burnt out, right? And that's not just because, you know, there is a wealth of talented leadership in the sector that we're going to lose. There's also just a basic welfare issue of caring for staff. And, you know, burnout is horrible. And we, we don't want people feeling that. Um, you know, and, and Vicky Browning also pointed out that we also don't want to do the same thing to the new crop of leaders, you know, just just burn through them as well and spit them out when they're done. You know, so, so there is there is something that needs to be done to tackle it. Right. So you're not bringing the kind of bright young talent into a completely unsustainable model that's just going to exhaust them and have them out of the door again within a couple of years. We're in a situation with leaders who are under pressure, feeling burned out and considering leaving. And on top of that, the pandemic isn't over yet. And as we discussed last week, we still don't know what those longer term effects are going to be. So what can the sector do? Well, so Vicky made the really good point, actually, that um, in, in the article that a chief executive is very much a charity asset. And she was pointing out, you know, if a charity has a building, that's an asset and you wouldn't let the roof cave in or the windows get smashed or remain smashed. You know, the chief executive is one of the best assets a charity has. So it needs to it needs to look after them in the same way it would a physical asset was, was her point, which I think is a really interesting way of putting it. Um, so her advice was lots of the usual stuff that we hear about this, um, you know, and but it is genuinely important, right? You know, this about keeping communications open between the board and the chief executive, making time to develop that relationship, check in with leaders, see how they're doing. Um, you know, and for chief executives themselves, she says, the key is to consciously carve out time for headspace and, and to prioritise that rather than seeing it as a sort of nice to have thing, um, which I do think is something that chief executives have found particularly difficult during the pandemic. Joanne Moriarty was saying many of them are so in awe of what people are doing for them on the front line that you know they don't want to sort of then complain about their own problems or take time out for themselves because, you know, they always feel like they're sort of beholden to these people who are who are performing amazing work on the front line. But obviously there is that aphorism that, that many people will be familiar about is that, you know, you have to put on your own oxygen mask before helping others on an aeroplane. And it's the same thing. You can't help other people if you're not in a position to do that. If you, and, and you have to help yourself to get there. Absolutely. And I think this strain on leaders is an issue that has been rumbling on for a while. It's it's not new. Um, and back in March, Martin Edwards, who is the chief executive of the Children's Hospice Julia's House, wrote a really brilliant column for us that explored how chief executives can seek support from each other when they're feeling the strain as well. So I spoke to him earlier about how he thinks chief executives can create their own peer support groups. So hi Martin, how are you doing? Hello Emily, I'm well. How are you? Yeah, I'm I'm good. I'm I'm really well and it's great to be seeing you again. I remember editing this op-ed that you sent to me really clearly because I opened up the document and the first line was hands up if you feel exhausted and I was just like woohoo, hands in the air. Absolutely. It's something that we are seeing and hearing so much at the moment, particularly from people at the top um, of the sector. Um, 
people are tired. And clearly you felt that at the time when you were writing your piece. So a few months down the line, you know, how would you say the mood is among your peers at the moment? How are charity chief executives feeling? I think the uh, the pressures and the exhaustion come and go in waves. So, you know, clearly for the first three or four months of the pandemic, everybody was in crisis management mode. And it has it has come up and down in, in waves as different guidelines have come out from the government that need interpreting and applying across our organizations as different things have happened to our abilities to raise money. So those those pressures have, have, have peaked and troughed, I would say. And and what you get then is a cumulative feeling of exhaustion, I think, because we're, we're not out of this yet. We're certainly not out of it in terms of the, the infection control and the clinical challenge that we have at our children's hospice, Julia's House. And, and no charity is out of the woods in terms of the impact on public fundraising and the extent to which public interaction will recover and therefore fundraising will be enabled. And with the government lifting restrictions, um, it means with that free-for-all, you've got to interpret what that means in your organisation, both for the care of your service users, where you might use more of a sense of caution, and in different types of fundraising, where there will be varying degrees of public confidence to take part in those things. So there's a whole lot of um, complexities and uncertainties still to deal with. And I think I think it does add up to a sense that we haven't had a break for a long time and we're going to need to take a break at some point because um, the pressures will carry on in, into, the, into the middle distance. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as you've mentioned there, you have not only you know, organisations having to manage the the strain on their service users and working with the people they support when that need has been heightened through the pandemic. And we were speaking about, you know, one of the people you work with at Julia's house before this call, um, but also the fundraising strains and the strains which are happening internally within their own organisations. And when you are a chief executive, you're having to balance every single one of these pressures at the same time. So even if you have a bit of relaxation in one area, you will potentially be having, you know, an acceleration in stress in another. So perpetual exhaustion, it's not really that surprising. Something that struck me as really interesting um, in the op-ed that you wrote is the comment that chief executives also lack a peer group, which can really compound those feelings of stress and of isolation as well. Why is this such a problem for the leaders of charities? And what would you say are some of the core challenges that they face when they are looking for support? Well, I think the first thing to say is that every layer of the organisation has experienced extreme stress. So as a chief executive, I haven't had to wear full PPE in the height of summer, providing frontline care to the children we look after. Our nurses and carers have. That's a very different kind of pressure. Equally, it was a very different kind of pressure to the to the one third of the organization and at times half of them who who we put on furlough, you know, because with the best will in the world, they didn't choose that. And they were on 80% pay and they were feeling out of the picture, even though we were communicating with them. There's, there's a sense that they're not part of the that, that core that's carrying on running the charity. So there have been different pressures at play across all layers of the charity. But as far as chief executives go, I think we're in a different position because we, we don't have a peer level within the organization we report to a board who are or should be hands off and we we line manage and support everybody else and i think when everybody else needs more support more reassurance your um, your energy levels the amount of energy that you have to put into communicating reassuring trying to stay connected to people that you're no longer able to meet 
um, goes sky high and, and you kind of feel like your energy levels are depleted. Um, for me, I think communicating with the board isn't the same way that you should communicate with an external group of, of, of peers. Um, I think a board still, they want an honest relationship with their chief executive, but they still need to feel confidence in the CEO and the senior management team. Therefore, I, I, I don't think you should necessarily confide all of your innermost doubts and fears to, to a board. I think you, you have to strike a balance there. You have to have an honest relationship. But I think it, you need something different where you can completely decompress. So recently, I, I took part in a group called Strategic Change Boards, which is a not-for-profit CEO peer group. If you Google Strategic Change Boards, you, you'll find them. They're running a, a, a range of these groups. I, I took part in them. Um, and it was a welcome way of relieving pressure amongst just talking about our, our worries of, of people running charities in various different parts of the country. We were all running completely different types of charities. I think that was good because we were able to bring a very different perspective to the advice and support we were giving each other. We weren't getting down into the weeds of, of how we're running our own organisations. But you need that decompression. You need somewhere where you can go and just be completely honest on the days when you're feeling utterly spent and somebody will listen without judging you. Absolutely. And I think that's a really interesting comment as well, that it can be really helpful to have external support. So someone who is actually removed from the organisation that you, you work for and is going through different challenges, but you can then kind of share the common experiences that you are are going through. Um, do you have any other recommendations? So you've, you mentioned that peer-to-peer -peer group there for other places that chief executives could also go to look for support. Yes, our local Chamber of Commerce, which we're a member of, um, ran a peer support group and they're, uh, they're doing another one. So I recommended that our Deputy Chief Executive go on that one. Um, it was free and it, it may have, there may have been some sort of government grant involved there. So there may be other offerings like that through local Chambers of Commerce. Um, there are some purely commercial offerings out there, but they're eye-wateringly expensive. I mean, I've had offers of, you know, 15 grand in order to offer to, to join a peer support group to relieve my stress. Well, frankly, that would just add to my stress because, you know, I, I, I feel that we have an apocryphal supporter called Mrs. Brown out there who's very frugal and she wants to know that money is well spent. Um, and if she knows that we're running our charity well and she trusts us to be prudent, you know, she might be a legacy donor in future. So I, I have those kind of people in mind when I'm deciding what we should spend money on. So, you know, but, but if, if if there isn't a, a local offering that comes to you, then then find one, you know, go and make contact with people you do know who are chief executives in corresponding organisations. And I would suggest, you know, at the moment, try and have a face-to-face -face meeting if you can do that safely, have it outdoors, because we're all zoomed out. We've all done so much Zoom over the last few months, but, but if, if, if you have to do it on Zoom, then that's fine. But just have that area where you can just be completely honest. It'll feel like a time commitment, but it will pay itself back many times over, I think, because you, you just need somewhere where you can be completely honest about your vulnerabilities, your weaknesses, without it coming back to you and, and affecting the confidence that people have in you. You spoke very eloquently about 
the value that that peer-to-peer support brought for you, while also recognising that, you know, the the well of of support can run dry if you're doing too much there. So whether it's in a, a formal or an informal capacity, what would you say are the things that chief executives can do to support each other without adding to that strain on themselves? It's a bit like a friend you haven't been in touch with for quite some time and you're you're wondering whether they're going through a tough time, don't hesitate to reach out to them and ask them how they are, because that might be the most important contact they have in their week. Just somebody reaching out and saying, you know, just checking in with you, and why don't we have a chat? And and if somebody reaches out to you like that, well, accept it, you know, even if you have to book a time in a a few days' time. Um, But, you know, we're, we're applying the same approach to our staff. I'm saying to everybody, if you haven't heard from somebody for too long and it just feels a little bit odd, reach out to them. And, and we all know other chief executives, so they, they don't have to be peer groups of people you've, you've never met before. I used to do it all the time pre-pandemic, you know, meet, meet up with people. Um, and sometimes those chats would come out with real nuggets of ideas, but often they were just about bonding and just about realizing you're not the only one feeling those pressures and, and you come back kind of renewed and, and, and feeling stronger for it. Um, and we've got out of the habit in the pandemic of, of, of meeting face to face. So make that contact, reach out to somebody and you'll both be grateful for it. Some sage advice there. Thank you so much, Martin. It's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you. And hey, maybe let's go for a coffee soon. Yeah, I'm buying. Look forward to it. Each week, we are bringing you a good news bulletin, positive or quirky news stories that we've spotted in the charity sector. What do we got, Rebecca? Okay, so this week, we've got the news that a Salford-based homelessness charity, Loaves and Fishes, is going to be included on the Salford version of the game of Monopoly. Okay. Um, So the charity is going to be included on the um, community chess square. Um, So if you play Monopoly, you go around and you pull out cards on the community chess, and normally it means... It's normally positive, right? You get something out of community chest. It's a little bonus to help you along. And as part of that, Loaves and Fishes is going to be featuring on that little square, which I think is rather lovely. So in June alone this year, the charity had 920 visitors to its centre in Paddington Close in Pendleton in Salford. Uh, It provided 773 meals, prevented 105 people from being homeless and intervened with support work 346 times. Um, The charity has become a lifeline and a major asset to the city. um, And it it began in the basement of a cathedral, uh, St. John the Evangelist in Chapel Street um, in 2006. And from there, it's gone on to really, really support the community. And now it is featuring as kind of a community landmark within this version of the game. Enshrined in Monopoly. Yeah. And I actually loathe the game Monopoly to my very bones. Really? Um, I... I really do. But even I think this is a really lovely, cool gesture. I think that's really, really great. I think um, it's a Monopoly is a very useful tool for figuring out what your family actually thinks of you, <laughs> in my opinion. I think it's a kind of it's a psychological test that you go through at Christmas or on a family holiday. Um, and I don't mind playing it because I'm one of the most low stakes non-competitive people out there so I'll you know I I tend to play with a slightly debonair sure take all my money I don't know can I run down to bankruptcy first um kind of attitude which is my you know that's my coping strategy for it but um people yeah people tend to have feelings about monopoly 
I guess. You and, and they they last forever. They do. The game's gone. I played a game of Monopoly two Christmases ago that lasted six hours. You just think, oh, nobody needs that kind of psychological testing at Christmas, particularly not for six hours. I think that is a form of torture. <laughs> and I think you should take your family to The Hague for that, frankly. <laughs> um, that's not OK. I just, yeah, just no, no one needs that at Christmas, frankly. Um, but uh, oh, incidentally, my brother always wins Monopoly and it's not that I'm sore. Um, but okay, yeah. so here you go, Racket. So this is it. Here we go. We're, we're now digging into actually your feet. I don't want to. I don't want to do this live on air. It's a horrible idea. Um, uh, yeah, but no. Incidentally, he always wins and always, you know, always. Wins. Let's not dwell. That's fine. That, it's fine. But it's great. You know, it's great that they're going to be on the community chest. I think is <laughs> yes. I think it's lovely, and I like the the look of the aesthetics of the Monopoly board. Mm. I think are great, and that kind of that iconography and the fact you can do it for different cities and what it means for people for different cities, I think, is really lovely. And I think this is a really cool gesture. <laughs> so, what else yeah. do you have in the good news bulletin this week? The Dogs Trust is celebrating after one of its charity shops raised a million pounds um, for the first time, sort of through its whole history. Wow! So, its Rayleigh shop in Essex uh, became one of the first charity shops to hit the grand total of a million pounds. The shop opened in August 2014, so it's just a few weeks away from celebrating its seventh birthday. Um, and, you know, this is this is an enormous achievement for the shop's dedicated staff and volunteers, you know, many of whom have been there since the very first day, which is rather lovely. And that one million pounds represents 137, 252 transactions and 506,876 items sold. So really impressive. Yes, this is obviously an amazing achievement for the charity and for the shop and a massive congratulations to all of those incredible staff and volunteers. But this got us thinking, what is the highest earning charity shop in the UK? Now, if you're listening to us thinking, that's great, but our charity shop has done better, do let us know. Yeah, we want to find out. Let's let's have a hunt for the, 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 the best earning charity shop. Most lucrative charity shop. Yes. And then I think we should do a field trip and we should go there. <laughs> Just saying. Um, And then we also, just last thing on our news bulletin, we have a late entry today. Uh, So when we uh, logged on to chat to Martin Edwards for the interview, um, we part of the interview, we kind of record the backup on mobile phones. And he explained to us that he actually had his phone propped up on a little Iron Man figurine, like a little Iron Man action figure holding up his phone which we thought was very cute. And uh, the reason for that, it turns out, is because uh, Robert Downey Jr. a few years ago raised a million pounds for... Um, Julia's house. For Julia's house, yeah, uh, which is amazing. Um, and so as that, he is a, a committed Iron Man fan. And yeah, Iron Man was helping out with our interview, which we just, I just, that was just joyful and fun. Little last minute snaps to Robert Downey Jr. Good job. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be back with another episode soon, so make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney, with thank you to our guest, Martin Edwards, and to our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week. 